Broadcasting live from somehow not only the only DCEU movie to crack a billion dollars, but the highest grossing DC movie ever. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, super tight ponytail Seamus Connolly. And I am Willem Dafoe if he drowned at the end of Life Aquatic and became a merman. <laughs> Garrett's brother. I thought you were going to pull something like Willem Dafoe's weird lighthouse guy hallucination from the lighthouse. Something, something. Uh, oh, God. Well, we're back, folks. Can you believe it? With those lazy Willem Dafoe jokes, we did it. He got his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame this morning, Seamus, so... Is that true? That is absolutely never... true. As day of recording, hell? obviously. That's crazy. That is... I Good for him. He deserves it. He, I, I figured out over the break he is maybe my favorite actor right right now. I think I had that epiphany while watching uh, Asteroid City. And we will go ahead and get started with some news. It's been a long time since we've recorded this is our first podcast of 2024 and in the interim since our last episode came out um some news has come out about vin diesel oft talked about figure on this show that does not seem super great Uh, we don't usually cover this kind of thing on the show but he's been such a big part of the show for so long that we felt we had to mention it we aren't going to get into details here we are not journalists we don't purport to be but we encourage the audience to educate themselves about what's going on with the ongoing litigation and i certainly am saddened to hear the accusations Mm. that have been leveled against him because they are severe and damning yeah i you know we've had plenty of time since this news started to come out and since we've recorded again and uh, just a lot of what i've been thinking about is you know for as much as we talk about vin diesel on this show it, we we aren't we, we do this podcast and those silly marathon things we we are championing people at their best we're not defending anybody at their worst you know there's no there will be no weird backpedaling we'll see what is going to come out of this in the most factual way and, and deal with it absolutely we will But moving on to a more normal news segment, we do have some unfortunate news still up top. A legendary character actor, Tom Wilkinson, has unfortunately passed away. Very sad news. One of my favorite that guys. Love Mm. him, obviously, in Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. An amazing performance in Michael Clayton, a movie I've still not gotten you to watch. And also uh, Ben Franklin on the HBO miniseries John Adams alongside Paul Giamatti. I actually did not know that he did the John Adams thing. I I truly maybe only know him from Ghost Protocol. When he came up in that movie, I did have that moment of like, oh yeah, I've seen this guy in maybe a million different things, but I truly couldn't put my finger on anything except for Mission Impossible right now. I know how much you love the grand, exotic, best, marigold hotel Grand Budapest. Oh yeah, sure. No. I was like, yeah, dog, yeah, me no, too. Sure. No, the, be- the grand, the it's the old, it's all the old British people that are in a hotel in India. And Maggie Smith is there, and Judy Dench is there, and Tom Wilkinson, I'm pretty sure, is there. Dude, no, I, you could be making all this up right now, and have been, I would, I would f- probably believe you. He's also probably best known for his role in the Full Monty. He's one of the guys in the Full Monty. 
He also is in the Grand Budapest Hotel. It just occurs to me. He is. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I thought you were doing a bit there. Yeah, man. Oh. That's He's in a lot of hotel things. A lot of big, long name hotel things. The best exotic marigold hotel is exactly what it's called. Well, I know I'm going to I'm going to try to to round up a few more of his roles here in my own repertoire. I mean, Michael Clayton, like you said, when I was looking into more of his filmography today when, you know, prepping for all this, I I did notice that Michael Clayton was on there and that has been recommended many, many a time. So I I've got to actually, you know, sit down and get into that one. Another big passing, but one that is more of a, of, of a celebration of life, as Glynis Johns has passed away at age 100, certainly known best for her role as Mrs. Banks in the original Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. I love her from 90s comedies, The Ref and While You Were Sleeping. I don't know if you've seen either of those, Seamus. No, I have I have not actually. I I took another look through her filmography as well today and I I really just knew Mary Poppins maybe. I I was just so impressed that I I kind of skimmed her entire career there and she was doing like two to four movies or shows a year at at one point and that that is it's just so impressive to see the the diversity of her of her work all laid out there in front of me like that. She's a great talent. While You Were Sleeping is a terrific ensemble cast. Chicago-based rom-com Sandra Bullock, Bill Pullman. Mm. You would dig it a lot, I think. And my father would, would be mad at me if I didn't mention her starring role alongside Danny Kaye in The Court Jester, a movie I have never made it all the way through, but he assures me is wonderful. I do love Danny Kay. I mean, yeah. I would watch that. You want to you want to sit down with Jay and and throw that one on? I mean, why not? We just had an episode about Willy Wonka where I was like, I was an idiot, and I thought this was like a boring movie. You know, yeah. I I we all come around one day, Garrett. We all eat crow on this podcast. Oh, almost all the time, actually. <laughs> but you know who never eats crow, Seamus? Who is that, Garrett? An Amazon attack. Morning, Amazon oh attack. God! You're in danger. Pop culture reference. Amazon Prime Video is going to start showing ads on their programming unless you pay an extra $3 a month for your Prime Video subscription. I already watched so many ads on Amazon Prime Video. I thought that was already kind of <laughs> what it what happens there. It's kind of a bummer that they're just like, "Oh no, that was that was the already the good stuff. Now we're doubling down unless you unless you pay more." That that really does suck. I'm perplexed by this in a similar fashion that I am to Apple TV's price hike, where I was like, the whole the whole appeal to me initially with Apple TV was it's it's cheap and it's mm. not a ton of content, but it's all good. And now that they're expanding into these giant awards movies, Killers of the Flower Moon, Napoleon, uh, I I understand where that is coming from, but similarly amazon is positioned where amazon prime video has always kind of existed as a bonus you have your amazon prime account yeah exactly and now the fact that you're going to be penalized for not giving by and large a few extra bucks a month is is frustrating to say the least like i said there's already like a pretty good amount of ads even if it is more of the like you know they throw in a good you know 100 seconds of ads right at the beginning of something and then they they let you pretty much go about your time watching whatever but it doesn't feel good 
as I have been, I, I suppose, as I have been using Amazon less and less, this extra $3 a month is is just not looking good on, on their part for me to stick around and, and care more or care about it enough over other streaming services to, to pay it. They also already have Freebie, which is like Crackle, where you watch ads to watch a movie without a subscription, and I feel like that was a slippery slope, you know, when we watched Riddick on Freebie for the for the oh, episode yeah. 100. Oh, my God. We were telling them, yes, we will watch ads, Amazon Prime. It's our, it's our fault. It's the podcast's fault, Seamus. This would have felt better if they were just like, Amazon Prime as a whole is going up by $3. Because then you could justify that with like, well, it's, it's Amazon Music and mm-hmm. all the stuff with the retail and how... Amazon Prime Video has been, but as it stands, as its own little slice of the Amazon Prime pie, there that it's 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 wild to me. I th- I guess that's really the secret is they don't want you to pay the three dollars. They would rather have you as ad revenue. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's true. It's just enough where people are probably going to be like, I'll just watch the ads. Well, we cracked the code, Garrett, and by we I mean you did. As I was sitting here complaining about <laughs> Amazon Prime Video. <laughs> You were the Poirot, where like I'm the book who said like a just a regular phrase, and you're like, "Say that again." I am going to crack this case. We have not talked about Poirot enough since October, so I agree. We're bringing dude, it back. I... Speaking of uh, Willem Dafoe and exotic locales, you want to go <laughs> ahead and move on over uh, into our main segment, Aquaman: Colon the First Aquaman. Oh God, let's finally do it. For today's main segment, we are talking about James Wan's Aquaman. What a what a strange movie to revisit, I will say. And for you, the first time, which I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts about on that. But we don't often on this show. I feel like we really try to avoid the DCEU, save for your your Black Adams and your Snyder cuts, because those were both. I, I think you could agree, both equally cultural uh, touch touchstones of their time. But this I is, know which uh... one I think about more. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, with Aquaman, I'll tell you, Garrett, I was thinking a lot more about Justice League and what an absolute <laughs> joyless experience those movies are. I would like to hear your thoughts as a first timer here, as somebody who has just i don't know if you've purposefully avoided it as much as you've just like never cared enough to watch I just it don't but... care you ready this is gonna be the shortest podcast ever um i already sent you this review but for the <laughs> listeners at home you know what why not why not aquaman seamus <laughs> yeah yeah you know i i i said this before to you as well i it's like i was thinking about Black Panther 2, a movie that came out years after, and and what is arguably a way more successful franchise. And I I kind of don't I don't hate Aquaman, you no. know. I thought it was a good I was a good amount of fun. The fight scenes were more fun than the fight scenes in Black Panther 2. I I don't quite care for the the romance no, of of it all. I but... think it has its moments though, and we'll get into that a little bit more in spoilers. But yeah, performances, pretty solid. Like, and I know I already mentioned it's a James Wan, so I don't even have to tell you that Patrick Wilson is here, but he's killing it. <laughs> he's great. He's Willem Dafoe is killing it. 
Willem Dafoe is doing, he's like an alien. He's like one of the <laughs> Galaxy Quest aliens. He's this weird I, robot man. Well, once I kind of sank myself more into, like, he's doing Elrond from Lord of the Rings. Yo, he and he's like, doing Elrond. He's just like, he's stoic elf, kind of like, he is guiding the, the next generation. I was, I kind of... I liked the more fantasy stuff than I remembered the first time I watched this. This is only the second time I've seen it, but I, I enjoyed it even more than the first time. I, I, I was in for all the weird fantasy, the kingdoms, the politics. I, I was there. Well, what I think I'll highlight as my first kind of reaction was how much I really appreciated the things that this was influenced by you can actually see the influence on the movie because you hear a lot of talk about how Peyton Reed was really influenced by Ocean's Eleven when he was making Ant-Man. And I'm like, that's not true because it's not in the movie. That's not in the movie. <laughs> we that's, would be able to tell if um, that was true. That's a phrase you hear a lot now, specifically with this with this genre, this superhero genre of, well, we were influenced by all these great films and these classic films. and. Mm. A mythos, we hear that all the time, that the Marvel is the new pantheon of, of, of myth. <laughs> sure. And here you actually have James Wan, who has clearly seen the first Superman one million times, a movie you have not seen. <laughs> a movie that I am looking at unplayed right in front of me right now. <laughs> I was going to say, it's sitting on my Blu-ray shelf, but no, my Blu-ray is sitting on your Blu-ray shelf. <laughs> yes, um, yes it is. That is so evidently an influence on this movie, and then obviously all of the Lovecraftian, Arthurian influence of actual mythology, and you were talking about the kingdoms. I mean, Lord of the Rings totally is in this. It's more sure. probably the fact that Tolkien was influenced by the same myths that... Oh. Yeah, Juan is influenced by, but then of course also I think kind of the funny, this would have been broadcasting location if the fact that we used this broadcasting <laughs> location weren't so insane. The fact that the opening line of this movie is, Jules Verne once wrote. Oh my god, dude, I laughed so hard because I did not remember that at all. I blocked that out somehow. In Jason Momoa's, like, <laughs> California voice, it cracks oh, me up. So much. But... You know what? I see all of that in this movie. I see the stuff that it's claiming to be influenced by. It has a paint-by-numbers story arc, but it has a solid, trod, tried-and-true hero's journey. He is Arthur. He is the reluctant king. He. It's great. It's such a good device that most superhero movies in the contemporary world are not willing to be seen as corny or stupid. And you brought up the fight scenes. These fight scenes are ridiculous. They're all CGI, but James Wan understands if you're going to do a CGI fight scene, it should at least be insane. And it's yeah, insane. Yeah, for sure. It, it really gets wilder than I remembered. Again, I, I, for some reason, I maybe just like half watched it the first time, but this second time around, I was just like surprised left and right by how, it really felt like an epic kind of story. And I don't know how much of that is helped along by the fact that I truly have zero history or love or past with the character of Aquaman. You know, like, yo, okay, of... dude, that's, that'll be, okay. 
I mean, I mean, all the all the Superman, the Batman, Wonder Woman could stood on its own because I didn't really have much of a past with that and all. But everything else, I'm like, oh, it's the Justice League. It should be the Justice League. And then I, you know, I'm punched in the gut, you know, when that when I saw that back in the day. But this was just like, it's Jason Momoa. I do enjoy him. It's everyone else there that I like. It's James Wan. It's just underwater Superman stuff that I don't have to be like nitpicky as much as I had been with something like Batman vs Superman. Mm-hmm. So as it stands, as as the literally the only Aquaman that I know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a fan. I would say I very much enjoyed. What's interesting is that. I am not a comics Aquaman guy. I don't know. I mean, like, I have a functioning knowledge of the base tier. The the villains who are in this movie I was aware of before I saw this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, but I mostly am a fan of Aquaman from the 70s and 80s cartoons from Super Friends and... The Aquaman cartoon that used to be on Boomerang, and my sister specifically, she loved Aquaman. (laughs) She loved the Aquaman cartoon. And it's really fun. It's almost like an Adam West 60s camp appeal. It's self-aware. This movie mostly doesn't have that, but there are moments where I got really excited to see a stupid thing from the cartoon be literally (laughs) translated into live action, which I won't get into until spoilers. The audience at home, if you're listening to this, I cannot believe in the year 2024 I am sitting here and telling you that (laughs) even though it is imperfect, even though a lot of its camp doesn't work for me, even though some of the performances are bad, go watch Aquaman. I liked it. James Wan... He's a good director. I think we've never not said that on this podcast. <laughs> if we've ever run into James Wan in any of our main segments, he has been he has been a star for real. I do want to shout out. We have not mentioned Yahya Abdul Mateen the third, a guy who I feel like I am constantly bringing up on this show, and you're always like, "Who are you talking about?" That I I forgot like half the people that were going to be in this were in that Willem Dafoe when he showed up I was like whoa Willem Dafoe <laughs> is in this and he was in the Snyder Cut I think so I I should have known yeah that. dude Dolph Lundgren I definitely didn't know he was going to be in this that was insane and he's like you know he's not doing his usual like what he's famous for he's just like kind of doing a regular stoic role in this as like a as a monarch I, I liked it a lot no I'd love to know if he was a DC fan or if he was just like I understand the actors were paid. Because, yeah, because I wonder, I, I wonder. what a weird role for him to take. I would love to get into a little bit more of the details here with you. I, I kind of feel like we have to. I, I, I keep scrolling through my notes looking for things that are not spoilers. <laughs> and it's mostly just me reacting to stuff. Yeah, I guess let's go ahead and call and call spoilers on Aquaman. Where do you want to start here? I mean, it is so... I will say, I mean, the casting of Tamir Morrison as Arthur's dad... Pretty great. I thought that worked kind of kind of wonderfully. What about Kendall Tamira Morrison as? Arthur's oh yeah, dad? weird. Uh, Guardians two Tamira Morrison, where he's just like very yo. That's not even that's not even fair to. I think that the Guardians two de aging looks a lot better than. I, I I had flashes of young Kurt. I will say. I don't know. I I was. 
it got weirder as I went. I will say, the more he was just like in '80s clothes, and I was like, "What? What? What a weird! Why are they staying here? I don't know." Well, it's especially jarring because Nicole Kidman—they didn't do anything to basically. <laughs> do you have to, man? I mean, I'm no, I'm not saying I'm not saying they had to, but that's it makes it all the more jarring that she like. When you see yeah, Michael Douglas yeah. and Michelle Pfeiffer next to each other and they're both young because they both have aged, you know, in a way that, not that Nicole McKinman doesn't look older, but she looks a lot more like she did in the 80s than, than any of the other people do. Sure, know? yeah, that is that is true, that is true. I find it a little unnerving, but you know, I can live with it, it's fine. What about little boy Superman origin aquarium stuff this that, is what that... this is what i'm talking about dude like the, he has seen superman so many times because <laughs> uh, yes, this dude this story so much and especially be the beginning so much follows the arc of that first superman movie because there's not really i was thinking about this when it came up there's not really a point of that scene being in the movie there's no consequence that comes it's not like man of steel that milks for two hours. Sure. Oh like, my god, yeah. You shouldn't have saved that bus full of kids, Clark. Or whatever <laughs> Kevin Costner's saying in that movie before he gets tornadoed. Uh, <laughs> he should have gotten tornadoed earlier. That's bad I, advice. Kevin Costner, Jesus he's, Christ. He's a ba- I mean, I think Kevin Costner is fine in that movie, but it's it's not Paw Kent. It's, it's not what it is. This is not the Man of Steel cast. but It's not, but it also I, now makes me think about how do literally zero characters die in this movie i'm sorry i'm getting ahead of myself i I just want to point out i think it is a positive that that scene's in the movie because it just is a it's like a beat it's just a beat to have in the movie that is a classic beat that is a nice character beat not everything has to be and his classmate grew up to be robin and you know like it's just a nice little (laughs) cool that he's talking to fish in the aquarium those two bullies who are three times his size and 10 years older like oh look at the guy kid can talk to fish uh they don't make it more than it needs to be i will follow your line of thought now too yeah i was thinking that i thought for sure nicole kimman was dead in this movie like i thought she was gonna come back and immediately get killed which i'm glad that she didn't because i really enjoyed despite weird plastic tamara morrison their love story i liked how much oh, yeah. time oh, yeah. was spent on it and that the final note of the movie is is them being reunited that it really has that through line yeah you know he still go, he still goes out to that dock every day like oh it's it's it makes up for the super duper dull main romance that they they have throughout the whole movie Knowing that what we're getting in the new Aquaman from the one trailer that I saw it looks more like a a buddy movie with yeah. with uh, Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson. That's what I wanted the whole time that we were in this first one. But I, and I know we couldn't really do that for obvious plot reasons yet. But I was just like, yeah, whatever. She's she's here. She's like Dolph Lundgren, Dad, please don't or whatever. I don't want whatever. I was I... less impressed by her whole. Thing. You know, I started this movie being like, oh, Amber Heard is not good in this. And then she slowly grew on me, actually. Because I don't think she's a bad actor in general. Like, I have liked her in things. But at the beginning, she's really wooden. And then I think when we get down to Atlantis, she becomes a lot more interesting. The problem is that she and Momoa don't have chemistry. And that I, is 100% right. And I think that I read that Juan wanted to recast her, but, like, Elon Musk had a fit and 
wouldn't let it happen. Oh God! It, whatever. I don't. Why did Elon Musk have a say in this movie? Because he was he's he was dating her for a while. Well, I don't yeah, know. I know, but I I guess it's like a favor to Elon Musk. Just, it James doesn't matter. Like, I don't I don't want to get into all that. And I, I was like, no, I, I know, I, I, I know. Like Amber Heard's in this movie. I don't want to get into all that. But in the movie, as as it stands as an individual role here i agree not a ton of chemistry by the time they jumped out of the plane into the sahara desert and they try to do like the quirky joke scene before they get to the other place i was Mm -hmm. i was already like this is this is too far movie i am now checked out completely of this relationship here but she has a great moment with patrick wilson where there's actual tension between them i think all of her stuff with patrick wilson is actually really strong in a way that most of the time when you have that kind of, you know, love triangle, but that's not really a love triangle dynamic in a superhero movie, it's really boring and stupid. Yes, And agreed. Patrick Wilson is enough of a nuanced character in this. Atlantis feels really fleshed out before Aquaman gets there, which helps a lot in making him feel like an outsider, because a lot of the time you get somewhere and... It's like the kingdom was just waiting for Aquaman, for the Aquaman character to show up. Yes, the town exactly. was waiting for the stranger to ride in, and here it does not feel like that at all. Her outfit that she wears, that like weird coral white dress thing that she wears, watching the arena fight between Patrick Wilson and Aquaman, that is such a cool outfit design and it's even cooler in motion that is such a great example of the way that this movie takes advantage of its underwater setting when it's in there and really it feels like a living breathing society and not just like oh but we made ancient greece underwater dude the how much i thought about i know you have not seen the cult classic the little mermaid the new the new live action (laughs) little mermaid but the the fact that the underwater stuff looks so much better than the little like years removed from Disney saying here's all the money in the world to make special effects underwater and Aquaman still like totally beats it by a mile. I was very impressed by that. All the hair, the everyone's long hair that is underwater and mm-hmm. and I mean, even the warbly, like, talking effects that they have on their voices when they're underwater, it's not, like, so distracting that I'm like, all right, I get it, they're underwater. But it's still, it it added. Everything added in a really great way when they were all underwater that I kind of wished that the scene, (laughs) when we got to, like, surface world scenes, I was like, let's, let's go back underwater for a while. Let me see what, let me see what the foe is doing underwater. Totally. I think that you could spend more time in Atlantis in this movie, even though I like the the treasure hunting angle, and we'll get into that more in a second. Mm -hmm. Before we leave behind Mira and Aquaman, because I want to note that I think despite the lack of chemistry of the leads, another strength of this movie being more classically minded, having a formulaic, but not as a derogatory word, arc, is that you still have these beats that make me more invested in that relationship that don't make the entire thing feel like a wasted effort. Because in most movies, you would just have the characters that would technically just be on an adventure together and they would have their little quippy scenes. Mm-hmm. And then they'd kiss at the end and you'd be like, that. that's just nothing. And they have these little moments like, 
where she's talking about like in this like Jane Austen monologue about how she has to marry for the good of of Atlantis yes. and the good of the it, family when they're in the cargo plane mm-hmm. the cargo plane scene yes and then later when he he has a similar moment of vulnerability where he's like I am not fit to be a king I am not a good leader I'm not a good role model you don't want me to do this they both have these moments of vulnerability with each other in which I think they both individually are giving good performances it's just that they don't work super well together mm. so that you know I'm invested in that dynamic enough in that way even if i don't really like the leads together as as actors with their chemistry by the time we get to that third act kiss the big kiss moment it's still kind of orgasmic because it's this big like one has a eye for a great visual and the music swells and all the explosions and the camera sweeps around them and the hair and, like, she's got her leg up on him. It's just, like, it's a, still a strong moment that is propped up by the competence of the filmmaking, which makes you wonder how transcendent it would be if the actors actually had <laughs> chemistry. Oh, man. Well, we get what we can take from a movie like this, and, you know, James Wan's trying his damn best. So I, I, I do agree that there's enough to feel... It's not, like, so out of left field when they finally do get to that kiss that I'm, like, totally taken out. I was already, like, you know, I'll give her props where the props are due, but you... The way you said it, where it's, like, apart, they really shine, but together they kind of don't really hit as high... I, I think that's fair. It makes me interested to see how they're going to go about it with the second one here. I don't know absolutely how much of that will has changed in the time that they've shot this movie and edited it and re-edited it and reshot it and done all the extra stuff. But it's crazy to say that I'm looking forward to seeing their relationship in the sequel a lot. Because yeah. that, that's not something that I had really thought about at all until I rewatched this for the show. I think an interesting counterpoint to this is Wonder Woman, which this is a way better movie than Wonder Woman, by the way. It's crazy how much of a better movie this is than Wonder Woman. A movie that I think is original Wonder Woman. You were just saying before, you know, Wonder Woman was such a huge moment in the DC timeline here. Of that was the era of like, oh, they're turning it all around, and it was like nominated for Oscars and stuff, and it was very, it was very big moment. And I, I guess I haven't seen Wonder Woman since. It was probably in theaters, which is, you know, it's been a little soured by Wonder Woman 1984, all my memories. It's hard to, it's hard to not have those two linked. But now that I'm thinking about it, if I just had Shazam and Aquaman, I think that's really, and it's kind of a similar, I like Shazam for a lot of the reasons I like Aquaman. It's that it has, again, that similar formula of like reluctant hero has to learn to take this position of power against their own judgment of their lack of maturity or their mm-hmm. history with uh, with that power and that responsibility but then ultimately you know they get to have their their moments in their own ways and and reach their conclusions in in their satisfying ways but now i'm thinking about wonder woman again and it's like i did like it i do remember liking it i probably liked it a good amount more than you if i'm still trying to hold on to that memory but <laughs> I think I might watch Aquaman over Wonder Woman as it stands now. I bring up Wonder Woman as a example of Chris Pine is delivering a great performance in that movie. He's so funny in that movie. And charming and, and swashbuckling. It still doesn't do anything for the romance because 
not only do the leads not have chemistry, but in addition to that, you don't have a narrative support holding their romance up enough. Like, they are technically on an adventure together, but they aren't yeah. having those really strong beats that are telling me a lot about the interiority of each character as individuals. They each have, like, lip service of an arc. You just compare the scene where they're in the, the town dancing in Wonder Woman, which is one of the best scenes in Wonder Woman. I don't think that's anywhere near as well done as the scene where Mira goes up when they're in Sicily and is learning about all of the wonderful things in the yeah, market. Yeah. She does the magic with the dolphin and the fountain. That's a, such a charming little moment that is, again, it's not afraid to be a little cheesy. So it makes you feel better about the characters and their dynamic and where the story is going. Yeah, definitely. I, I almost forgot about that Sic little Sicily montage where they're kind of warming up to each other a lot more. And, uh, you know, it is a montage. They do not speak at all in, in that moment after the dolphin scene. I think they kind of have their their silent moments of discovery together and laughing and smiling. So I think that also definitely helps a lot with their with their moments that shine through. Speaking of montages, this movie has has a good few, and the montage where Black Manta is making his suit, I think is terrific, especially because we get to know that character so well <laughs> before he ever puts on the suit, which I think that is, that is kind of a common trend in contemporary superhero media where you're like, oh, well, the guy has to earn his iconic look. You know, Daredevil has sure. to earn the suit by the end of the first season or whatever. And that's a bad example because that's actually a good show. Him uh, laser blasting his helmet and being like, this is going to need to be a bigger helmet. And us knowing that Black Manta's helmet is insanely large and that eventually mm -hmm. we will get to that, like, super long neck style Manta suit. Yeah. I don't love how that character gets one cool action sequence and is immediately, like, disposed of for the Dude. rest of the movie. He really should be in the third act of this movie. I don't know how he would fit, but he should be in it. They have a great, like, commando sequence where they have a brawl. He does the whole, like, he wraps the boulder chain around his neck and, like, blasts his own helmet open. It was, it was very good. And then we just forget about him until literally the after credit scene. And I, I, don't, I truly don't think that's enough. I think he should have had a lot more of a direct hand in Patrick Wilson's schemes. Because uh, it's like they just kind of fit him in there because it's like, oh, we're supposed to have Black Mantis here. Yeah. He goes and he has the Abyss Zoom conference out <laughs> in yeah. the middle of the water, which is cool. And he it, it doesn't feel, even though they do some stuff like that, it doesn't feel super connected like you were saying. And I wish that it did because... He, each of their things individually are cool and when he gives like the Lovecraft Cities of Men speech right when he shows up in the suit for the first time that is so oh yeah awesome. yeah the two bad guys here they are technically working together for the same general common goal of like let's get Aquaman out of here but it feels like we're just it's it's just so conflicting at the same time we have all these like aqua commandos and their cool stormtrooper suits and their weird like coral gun rifle things and then it, just, it feels like they're battling each other for screen time instead of it being like we should have had some weird show and i mean obviously that weird showdown is going to happen in the second one and patrick wilson's going to be like 
no, Jason Momoa, I actually do appreciate you as a brother. And then they're going to, you know, do their whole thing there. But I felt sad for Black Mantis more than anything because he's got the cool, like, blade gauntlet thing. You know, his dad gives the whole backstory before he definitely is 100% responsible for his own death in that submarine. It's I, it's very... I don't know. Here's the thing. I don't know how I feel about Aquaman leaving that guy to die. But also, that's part of the arc. He's like, I left. Yeah, I yeah. killed a man. Because of ego, because I'm not, because I wouldn't save him. And by the end of this movie, that's not something he would be willing to do again. So, like, at first when that happened, I was like, oh, I don't know about that. That's like Superman An- maybe not anti-hero. being supposed to save the, yeah, <laughs> the school yeah, bus yeah, kids. Yeah. But that, that clocks for that character, at least, you know, like you said, at first. He he is more of an anti-hero. He's not part of the Justice League yet. Yes, he He's is. doing his This own. is after Justice League. This is explicitly after Justice League. After Justice League. Because remember, Mara's like, you took down Darkseid with the Justice League. And he's like, I'm not a hero, blah, 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 let me drink beer with my dad. Damn, I totally remember that line in the second time I've seen this movie. Jeez, I am, I need to <laughs> wake up, sheesh. I'm very satisfied with this movie, removed from Batman v Superman and Justice League, even though he kind of has a whatever roles in each but I, you know, I'd watch this alone any day before I even thought about watching the Snyder Cut again. Yeah, I mean, Snyder Cut is a movie that I said on this show that I enjoyed a lot more than I thought I would. But it's not something I ever feel compelled to see again. Like I facetiously alluded to up top, I think about Black Adam way more than I think about the Snyder Cut. <laughs> I think about Shazam: Fury of the Gods way more than I think oh, about the Snyder God. Cut. When when we inevitably do the Snyder Thon, and I'm I'm saying that on air right now as a as a torture device for the future us. I wish you could see the face I'm making right now. Uh, because you know we would have to watch the Justice League and then the Snyder Cut back to back. There's no segue for this action. I want to talk about the action sequences because oh yeah, let's. There's so much cool stuff in this movie that I'm just I have like just a list. Of things, and I'm like, that's rad. That's rad. That's Lay rad. Lay it on me. That's rad. Okay. Um, Willem Dafoe riding a big fish into battle against a submarine. Oh, yeah. 100%. I'm on that. The way that when they are fighting underwater with their tridents, the bubbles and water displacement act like blur motion lines behind their weapons. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. The bit where Mira creates a vortex of air underwater that traps Patrick Wilson and makes him fall oh, yeah. dozens of feet and then drops a ton of water onto him through that void. Incredible. Like, yeah, what a well-conceived, move. well-told action beat. Because that's the kind of thing, like... I think all the time about... And I'm sorry, I just totally cut you off. No, no, no. The beat in No Way Home where Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are fighting and Doctor Strange does a portal above Spider-Man and a portal below Spider-Man and Spider-Man falls through it infinitely like you would in the portal video game. Mm. And how many times have you thought that would be so cool to see in a movie? And I bet when you were watching that movie, you didn't think this is so cool to see in a movie because it's not executed in a visually interesting or exciting way. It's just a Mm. thing that happens flatly in the movie. And here, that vortex 
is something I never would have conceived of. It's such an insane idea that is also told so excitingly and so satisfyingly and so clearly that I can actually follow it and be into it. I love that too. Again, another major point that I fully forgot about until I rewatched this. Once she did that and I kind of started to wake up a little bit more about how creatively the underwater fight scenes are, even just down to the impact the feeling of when their tridents are smashing into each other it it adds with that kind of motion blur ish effect that they already have swinging but then you have like the environment itself their hair underwater reacting to the shock wave of each like incredibly powerful feeling hit it doesn't feel sluggish in underwater it feels like very fluid and underwater and and powerful and then once she does the that like vortex move and kind of expands what the idea of that 3d space is for a fight scene underwater like that i think it's just it's phenomenal and i hate black panther 2 i think i think (laughs) black panther 2 sucks so bad with their underwater stuff considering how fun and good the battle at the end where it's like Mm -hmm. the fleets are in play and everyone is just everyone's shooting at everyone else torpedoes and water lasers and plasma beams and everything is going crazy while there's a melee between the two airs it's like it's it's so flawless for a battle scene of that scale I don't know. Have we ever seen James Wan do a a scene of that caliber of that scale where it just it could very easily get lost in itself, but like you were saying before, everything seems to be working as it should. It, it, each piece is working individually so that when we cut from trident fight to ships clashing to giant Lovecraft Kraken-style depth of the trenches monster doing its thing, it, it, we're not just we're not feeling we're not feeling seasick down there. We're very we're we're on top of everything that's happening. And in addition to how visually, interestingly, and clearly that's told, that contributes to that, it's also that the storytelling is so clear. They establish earlier in the movie that he can talk to animals, and I love how literal the translation of the rings coming out of him yeah, into oh, the yeah, fish hell yeah. is. Because in a lot of movies, it would not be like that. In a lot of movies, it would be like maybe like waves or something. It, but it's like, no, it's just the rings from the comics, from the cartoons. I love that. And then one of his big moments in that third act is, I talked to all these fish, and they're on my team, including Cthulhu, baby. (laughs) Yeah, dude. Oh, great design on that big Cthulhu monster, too. Absolutely. You know, very, like, you know, Keeper of the Keys style, you know, verbally. They're they're seemingly very educated down there in the bottom of the trenches, but... You know, a, a tank, if you've ever seen one, when it, when it comes up to the surface, or the, whatever, the mid-ocean, mm-hmm. wherever that battle was happening. Big fan there. Oh, no, yeah. no, you know, Superman doesn't care. He, Superman's like, it's in the water? Whatever. I, I'm, I can hear it all <laughs> happening, but I'm not going down there. Whatever. Well, and then when it comes to the melee that you were mentioning, the fact that at the beginning when they fight, Patrick Wilson breaks Aquaman's trident he celebrates, and you're like, okay, so that's a definitive victory. The breaking of the trident, mm-hmm. whether or not symbolic. Aquaman is dead, yeah, it's a symbolic victory. And so then, that not, not only is that like a great beat in that earlier fight, but then you go into the third act, and guess what? Aquaman breaks Patrick Wilson's trident, 
And in a movie where you don't kill your main villain, the fact that you have established a symbolic victory over him mm-hmm. that still is satisfying to the audience and tells the audience, okay, so now I know that Patrick Wilson has been defeated. He is definitively Dunzo McGunzo. That's great. It seems stupid to pat the movie on the head for like basic storytelling, but you know what? A lot of movies now would not give you those beats. And Juan, again, is such a competent storyteller that he is making sure that that is all in there. I'm a big fan of that as well. That whole, and again, it has me way more looking forward to Patrick Wilson and his, you know, what his character is going to evolve into in the sequel here, where he was just like, you've, you've gotten your symbolic victory, but I want you to kill me. Like, this means so much to me that I don't care that you, you know, you've got the TKO, but I need you to stab me through the chest now because I feel so utterly defeated. It's great character moments all around when he can kind of stand back up and accept his exile with a, you know, he's not like so, he's got his chin up a little bit by the end there when he's like, this is kind of what I deserve and I'm kind of seeing everything in a, in a light that I have been blinded to previously. He's a pretty he's a pretty blatant villain all around. He stages a false flag on Atlantis using a nuclear submarine. Like that's pretty that's pretty out there. I like his little beat at the end, yeah, where he kind of sobers up and his mom gives him a hug. Yeah, and yeah. I like I like how much they are brothers textually because it's really easy to be like oh they're brothers but it's really did just treat him like any other bad guy but it is more complicated than that because they're brothers and again it's taking advantage of that like you have been saying excited to see their relationship develop further in the second one whose name i don't remember um, the way of water the way Aquaman of water. the way of water <laughs> is there a world in which you believe that patrick wilson is younger than jason momoa absolutely not when he started calling him little brother i was like all right okay that was like all the way at the end too and i was like nope finally broke the immersion about the underwater atlantean people little brother no chance i'd like i'll accept that humans turned into crab people for some reason yeah yeah we've got the trench tribe that's just like piranha people or whatever there's that horror angle that we were teasing at before that's a great sequence that's another going back to my laundry list of action beats and it ties in with you talking about how cool the water stuff in this is oh you talk about the flares the flares wide shot of the flares (gasps) underwater dude the flares with all of them swarming around the flare that's cool enough on its own but then the stroke of genius whoever if it was Juan, if it was the dp if it was just a guy in the visual effects department whoever figured out that oh we should have there be lightning going and you can see the gradient of how far the lightning penetrates down oh. into the water but eventually it doesn't even make it down. It's just pitch black because that's the point. Pure darkness. Oh, that's such a cool visual that kind of like the water vortex. Obviously, like conceptually, I understand all the all the science behind why water would be that way, but I would never have thought to put it in a movie like that. And you know how I like water movies, Seamus. And this movie does yeah. things that I've never <laughs> seen done in a water movie. It's kind of cr- again. I'm I'm floored in my revisiting here that you're right the most famous high budget popular water movies that we know don't do some of the cool things that they think of 
for this movie. And I, again, it's it's just, it's all hype material for a movie that is still like, our, you know, it's a five-year-old movie or whatever. And we're just finally being like, wow, they really nailed water. We're so uninterested with, you know, how water is treated in big budget movies now. And, and especially we're uninterested in superhero movies, but... It's it's just such a, a, such a surprising middle of the DCEU franchise treat to have Aquaman just kind of be banging. Totally agree. We can't even get into the whole, I think we're running low on time. <laughs> we can't even get into the, all the little beats of the Sicily fight with the crazy CGI camera moves and Mira wine bending and like, yeah, what? all that, that stuff is rad. crazy. Aquaman saves people again. Like, I really like that that's in a... In a superhero movie is explicitly Aquaman going out of his way to save people in the middle of the fight, which doesn't happen in superhero movies anymore. Again, I he's mean, seen Superman a million times. It felt so much like, even having not seen, my only Superman is Man of Steel. Through it all, I was like, this is what any Superman should feel like. It feels very powerful, the way that he does pretty much everything. I The way he swims, dives, fights with his hands, fights with weapons you know, rips out the, you know, the water from the water suits of the Stormtrooper guys mm-hmm. constantly loving all, loving all that. I, I was ready for lame Aquaman because that's just what all the jokes are. All the jokes yeah. from the time I could even remember Aquaman have just been like, oh, he does stuff in the water. Uh, oh, he could talk to the goldfish. Dope. Great. But everything defied my expectations of what this superhero movie specifically would be and now i guess i like aquaman what a weird i never in a million years would have thought that i would say i like aquaman no i w- i was really kind of dreading watching this movie for the show i was like oh, i just i just better get it out of the way and <laughs> i had a blast a few giant things we won't get to elaborate on this is mostly a treasure hunting movie didn't talk about that at all uh we did we not did, <laughs> we did talk about the fact that they go to the journey to the center of the earth like oh Kong my god is they go to skull island there. yeah <laughs> that's insane like the jules verne again jules verne stuff randall park in two scenes oh of this my movie. god yeah why is what? he here i was gonna maybe ask you you're somebody who watched those cartoons apparently is that not a character that's established like I'm black sure. mantis's sidekick i'm it's Black Manta, Seamus. It is Black Manta like I'm a sorry, manta I keep, I keep saying mantis like a like a praying mantis. So, <laughs> so different than the type of animal that he is going for. I, I don't know anything about. Seamus, what do you say we wrap up with Aquaman, a movie, again, I'm so delighted that I was forced to see for this show. And go ahead and move on over to our pop culture reference. Let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about Mickey Mouse and the public domain. With a Mickey... <clears throat> with a Mickey. Getting oh! <laughs> it's horrible. What, Italian the... Mario Mickey laugh, which <laughs> is Italian... honestly kind of close. No one's ever made that sound before. <laughs> that includes whatever Italian dub of the Mickey Mouse Playhouse show that there was. <laughs> With Mickey Mouse entering the public domain as of January 1st, we wanted to take a step back and discuss not only what this means for the current usage of rights of the character, but also the decades-long history between Disney and copyright. In 1989, the United States adopted the Byrne Commission, an international contract outlying terms of copyright first established in 1886, 
largely at the behest of Victor Hugo. Seeing this as an opportunity for further change, the Walt Disney Company and several other media organizations began lobbying U.S. Congress for copyright extensions. The lobbying campaign eventually resulted in the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which extended copyright in the United States significantly. Previously, under the Copyright Act of 1976, which Disney had also lobbied in favor of, a work of corporate authorship was protected for 75 years from publication, or 100 years after creation, whichever is shorter. With the new legislation, that was extended to 95 years from publication, or 120 years after creation, whichever is shorter. Disney's hard lobbying for the bill was specifically motivated by the desire to keep 1928's short Steamboat Willie, and therefore Mickey Mouse, out of the public domain. Because of this, the bill is often referred to derogatorily as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Now, despite the 40-year delay, Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse have indeed entered the public domain as of January 1st, 2024. A plethora of Mickey projects have been announced since the beginning of the year, many of which would have likely fallen under fair use as parody anyway before Mickey was in the public domain. But just because Steamboat Willie is in the public domain, that doesn't mean all Mickey is fair game. Later iterations of the character are still owned by Disney, and while elements such as gloves and eye whites fall under the realm of artistic license, copyright experts caution against adding too many of these details into your own Mickey creations until Disney versions sporting them become public domain as well. Steamboat Willie's version of Mickey is also still trademarked by Disney, meaning that it cannot be used in a way that may make consumers believe that the media they are interacting with is indeed a genuine Disney creation. Many have speculated that the inclusion of Steamboat Willie in the logo used by Walt Disney Animation Studios since 2006 is to strengthen their claim and bolster their ability to confront claims that may fall under trademark infringement. Oh, what do you think about this Steamboat Willie horror movie that was announced about 0.5 seconds after the new year? I don't Does that, care. I, I feel like it's... I don't like... I don't like it. I'm not a fan. They did the same thing with Winnie the Pooh a couple years ago when that entered the public domain, too. And it, it was such a big fuss for, like, January, and then no one ever really heard about it again, you know? People will figure out actually interesting ways that are not just for shock value to use Mickey soon enough. Because, again, as we mentioned, so many of these would have already fallen under parody anyway. Mm -hmm, Not to say mm -hmm. that you want to risk getting sued by the mouse, but <laughs> it's so frustrating that a company that built up their entire legacy, taking works that are in the public domain and adapting them, have been the source of so much delaying of other iconic stories entering the public domain. I hope that people actually go out and just make, like, you know, good Mickey cartoons and stuff. And not to say I really care about there being more Mickey, but it's symbolic of an era passing that even Disney, with all of its money and all of its lobbying, eventually does have to bow to the will of the people. Yeah, if, if you have ever seen anyone uh, even attempt uh, commission fan art, uh, pin, apparel, bags, literally anything that could be, you know, seen as whatever minuscule threat to Disney profits, the, the lawyers descend so fast. There are people that their whole entire life is being the crony who goes to sniff out who's breaking the copyright, the trademark infringement things that are... They love to shut down, but now, you know, this is a little bit 
that we're seeing now. I think it's only a year or two more before the color-accurate Mickey Mouse becomes public domain, too, then, isn't it? Yes, and there's also some, I didn't include this in the reference, but there's some contention about whether or not there is a poster for Steamboat Willie that includes Mickey's iconic colors. Oh. But it's unclear, copyright experts are unclear about whether or not that technically falls in the public domain for some reason. I don't know how that all works. So if people are advised to stay away from it, even though it might technically be legal. As a word of advice for anyone, don't try to go up against Disney lawyers. They they own a lot of stuff. But again, only a couple more years and then the, the Disney dam is really going to break with their iconic characters, their re-entry into public domain for even some of them. I'm looking forward to, like you said, hopefully some smart adaptations of these well-known characters and ideas. So really what this is for, it's like for people to make horror movies and for people to make weird porn. And it's like there's no in-between for a minute until somebody is smart about it. So... Well and bluntly put, Seamus Conway. <laughs> That's, I mean, hey, I, we call it, we say it like it is here on the Pop Culture Reference Podcast. Soon to have a Steamboat Willie logo, of course. That'd be really funny, actually. That'd be, <laughs> we should commission an artist to do a special you one-off. And Steamboat Willie. <laughs> That's good. It was Steamboat Willie with glasses. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. We could have somebody come on and be Steamboat Willie f- as a guest, and we'll we'll ask all of the Disney questions that that we've been dying to ask. That's that's pretty good. We'd have to have somebody be able to do that voice consistently for like an hour, though. So we got we got to pick that. That's when it's Walt Disney Mickey Mouse. So he's just kind of living up here. He's not really. Oh wait, Steamboat not... Willie doesn't even say anything. He just whistles. I think he does right? say a few things because no. you've seen the full cartoon, right? You've seen full. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I, 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 it's when been he's a while, beating but... animals to death and like using a cow. Yeah, as yeah, yeah. I think he says like I think he says like mini and things like that. I don't think it's anything. because oh, I was gonna say if he just whistles, you know, for all we know, Mickey's voice could be down here, and it's oh, that was just it was the with, silent era, you with, know. With the power of your imagination and the public domain, Seamus, Mickey's voice still can sound. It like could that. be anything. It could be anything. But with that, what do you say we wrap it up and we go save the rec center? Let's see. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly rec... (laughs) Amendations. (laughs) Okay, there. I really did think you cut out for a second. I was, I, that was going to be the funniest edit of all time, where I'm just like waiting for it. You're just like fully, your, your internet went out or something, and I'm like, this is a hilarious bit, Garrett. I would have been sitting here for 20 minutes waiting for you to come back in with the mendation. But Seamus, what do you have for us this week? In the new year, the first rec center of 2024. Yes, the first rec center of 2024. And this is, this is a... Uh, and wouldn't you be surprised, Garrett? It's a video game, huh? Imagine that. <laughs> I Fancy almost said, that. what video game are you recommending this week? But, <laughs> but I, I cannot tell you how enchanted I am with Katamari Damacy Reroll. Are you, do, are you aware of the Katamari games, Garrett? You should see the face I'm making right now. Are you completely bewildered? Do you I have, have any no idea? idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's originally a PS2 game. This is the remaster for PS4. It, it is a 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a weird, it's the weirdest, one of the weirdest Japanese games I've ever played. You are the prince of the cosmos, and after what I believe is a drunken bender, your father, the king of the cosmos, destroys all of the stars in the sky. So you're just a little guy, and you have to roll up everything on Earth into a giant ball and make new stars. Now, that sounds like nonsense, and I, I could hear your silence thinking, yeah, all right, this is another one of those one of those games. But, Garrett, the satisfaction of starting as just a little tiny guy the size of, like, a, let's say, a, a domino, and then rolling up exponentially until you are literally the size of, like, the Earth is one of the most satisfying levels of gameplay I've ever found in a game. It, it is pure like nonsense pretty much uh story wise but it's just have you ever wanted to just be a little guy and be turn into a bigger guy as you go and kind of roll up literally anything in your path like a like a weird snowball that is just growing and growing it's it is pure entertainment the music is phenomenal it's just the most bizarre japanese pop music you've ever heard and there's a split screen mode, Garrett, and I'm making you play this oh, with me when we are boy. at your place next, because it's it's just it's nothing but joy, Garrett. I can't recommend it more to you specifically. Here's the thing: I'm still making the face, but now I have one eyebrow raised. In That's curiosity. all you need. That's all you need. Trust me. I was I was unsure about this back in the day as well, but it is it's phenomenal. It's just it's so fun and goofy. It's it's very humor based, but also it's like. They just when they give you a twenty minute timer, those twenty minutes go by in no time at all because you're just you want to roll up everything. You want to roll up more, man. Once you're rolling up like pieces of continent and islands, it's it's there's nothing like it, man. I'm telling you. But what do you have? Probably a lot more conventional than mine to save the rec center this week, Garrett. Well, you can always say what movie do you have to recommend this week, Garrett? <laughs> a film I have not seen in in about ten years, I would think. Really liked it back in high school, was very impressed by it. It was like a real adult movie to me, and now I'm like, yeah, that's still a really good, you know, adult mm. drama. And that is L.A. Confidential. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. I've been on a real unconventional Christmas movie, New Year's movies kick over the last few weeks, and mm. L.A. Confidential is technically set at Christmas, <laughs> And I was like, oh, that, yeah. that sounds like a good fit. And I was just blown away by it. It is so beautifully shot, immaculately acted and, and directed, and it has so much to say about Hollywood and art and love and the American dream, the amount of time that has elapsed between the time when it was made and the time when it was set. But also, it says a lot very presciently about the time between it was made and now. Mm. In, the, in the last 25 years, it has done nothing but get better. It has aged immaculately, except for the fact that Kevin Spacey is one of the three main characters. Right, right, um, right. It's not for the faint of heart. It is much more violent than I remember it being, and I remembered it being pretty violent. It's a banger. It's the best neo-noir. I couldn't recommend it more heartily. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and second that one as well. That is one of the best movies about 
Los Angeles, maybe. I, I didn't even remember that it was a Christmas movie, too, or semi-whatever, but an incredible film, nonetheless. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show in the new year, you can find us at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. You can like us on Facebook. We're posting on social media again. We're back, baby. We are. We are. After 2024. 2024. That's our New Year's resolution is we're going to keep posting on social media. Yes. We're finally in season two of our own show. So we're, we're going uh, to keep up. You remember like a million years ago when we were like, actually, this is the end of the first season. That didn't mean a single thing. <laughs> uh, nope. No, nobody needs to remember either. Nobody, uh, praying that nobody who has listened to this episode <laughs> has listened that far back. Oh God, let's hope not. This is season two, starting starting in twenty twenty four. You count it. We're gonna talk. We're gonna bring back the Nightmare Alley bit. We're gonna uh, talk about. I do love uh, the Nightmare Alley bit. Uh, <laughs> so that is weird. one of the best bits that we have on the show. Oh uh, God. Next week we're covering Nightmare Alley. So, <laughs> starring the Kurt Russell twins. Starring Kurt Russell Twins, that's true. So yes, in in actuality, we will be covering the full season of Monarch Legacy of Monsters on Apple Television Plus. I'm I'm very excited actually to dip officially dip our toes back into the Zillaverse uh, on on the show officially with this new one. This is the first time we've really come back to it since episode 150. So man, oh man, <laughs> in the, in the last three to... episodes. Hey, it's felt like a million years to us, man. It's been That's true. It's been a long time. It's it, we don't usually take a hiatus this long. So, welcome welcome back everybody. I hope you Season like, 2, man. We're, we're back. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Everybody, we will see you next week. Adios, amigos. First one of 2024. Woo!